selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to do we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify's there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify's the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash audioboom, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash audioboom now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash audioboom. For those of you, and I'm, I'm sure most of you are, that are really interested in staying informed about American politics and even American culture, uh, let me recommend a podcast by an old friend of mine, John Howman, who's one of the most experienced people covering American uh, politics. He does uh, uh, The Circus, which is the, the show on Showtime with Mark McKinnon and Alex Wagner. He's a well-sourced guy. He he understands politics at a level that very few do. And a podcast called Hell in High Water. It's very good. It's very informative. And you should put it on your list. Hello and welcome to Politics War Room with James Carville, and I'm Al Hunt. This week, our guest is the former commander of the NATO International Security Assistance Force and U.S. forces in Afghanistan. He's now the current president of the Brookings Institution, retired United States Marine Corps four-star general John Allen. Remember, we love taking your questions, so write into politicswarroom at gmail.com or send a tweet to at Politicon for next week's show. We'll get to as many as we can, but don't forget to tell us where you're from. And please check out the links to this week's sponsors, Workable, HelloFresh, Blinkist, and the Hell and High Water podcast in the show notes. We thank you for supporting these sponsors. It helps make this podcast happen. Please tell your friends about us and remind them to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And you know, James, we've been fortunate to talk to General Allen before, and we always learn. As well as being one of the smartest public policy and military minds, his NATO background offers special expertise in this Russia-Ukraine war. General, first of all, thanks for being with us again. Uh, this war is entering a new phase in the Donbass, more conventional, I suppose. The Russians have a 270-mile-long, clearly have more resources. They are brutal. Yet, are they also vulnerable? I know the parallels are a reach, but you remember that supposedly great German army in 1942 was lined up, you know, probably more than 275 miles. General Zhukov found a way to break through their lines. Now, it's different today, but the Ukrainians have some advantages, don't they? Well, they do. Uh, first, it's great to be with you all again to see you. 
this is a critical Thank moment. Uh, it's always useful at a beginning of a conversation like this to remember that, uh, you know, six, eight weeks ago, uh, the Ukrainians were a completely peaceful country, non-threatening to the Russians, and here we are. Um, let's start by saying what background the Ukrainians bring to the battlefield. They have been training with us now for years. Uh, they were part of the uh, NATO program called Partnership for Peace. So they have been engaged in NATO training for a long time, both unit training and individual training. Uh, they uh, <clears throat> were a participant in an American program called the State Partnership Program, which is a very effective program. So the California National Guard has been the state partner for the Ukrainian military now for a number of years also, and that, that has been a very successful program. Plus, Ukrainian troops were in my command in Afghanistan, uh, and they've been with us on the battlefield, rubbing shoulders with American and the the more uh, the larger, more sophisticated NATO partners for many years. So that's the first thing. They bring a lot to the battlefield. The Russians haven't been in a, in a real battle in a very long time. And what you saw in phase one of this, uh, of this campaign that the Russians were waging was the result of a country that had good training. We had developed their NCO Corps. One of the greatest dimensions of the strength of the U.S. military and the strength of NATO military is that we have an NCO Corps. And our young officers are trained to lead, but also lead through their NCOs. The Russians still have not done that. Their Soviet-era uh, command and control at the small unit level, where all the fighting and killing is occurring, uh, relies on their young officers. And their, uh, their casualties among the young officers were quite high, and units just stopped fighting when that happened. So the, the first thing, Al, to your question, the Ukrainians bring the human dimension that is inherent to democracies and NATO to the battlefield. And they know how to fight in a combined arms environment. So it's not only the human dimension, but they fight in a combined arms environment. And you have seen that the Russians have failed in that regard. They had a very difficult time uh, and, and frankly failed on their principal main axis of attack into Kiev. Couldn't penetrate all the way to the city and ultimately were thrown back. Uh, they nearly encircled Kharkiv, but were unable to complete that encirclement as well. Uh, there had been some expectation that they would land on the Black Sea coast east of Odessa and push west to take Odessa and ultimately uh, stop at the Moldovan uh, border, uh, thus completely isolating Ukraine from either the Sea of Azov or the Black Sea. Uh, so the, the Russian uh, system of warfare, uh, which we would have thought uh, had some capacity for combined arms uh, operations has uh, has not shown itself to be that way yet. Well, I, I read a Washington think tank uh, uh, along those lines, which said, I believe the effective combat power of Russian units in eastern Ukraine is a fraction of their paper strength. Uh, they, uh, you know, build, building on, on their failures in, in, in Kiev, and some estimates that they've lost 25% of their combat troops. This really may not be a very good army, John. I don't think it is, frankly. Uh, again, let's, uh, let's do the math here. Uh, the, the biggest experience that the Russians have had in, uh, in employing combat power in the manner of Russian conventional combat force uh, was in Chechnya, uh, where they pounded uh, urban centers into dust in order to defeat the Chechnyans, and ultimately did, but they paid a huge price for that. Uh, in Afghanistan, they didn't do all that well either, frankly. Um, and in uh, Syria, 
their great contribution to the uh, Syrian fight was in what they were able to do to Aleppo and some of the other urban centers. So the whole idea of a combined arms battle of maneuver, which theoretically the Russians are organized to be able to undertake, uh, has not turned out to be uh, the reality for them. And, you know, Al it's, uh, and James, it's, it's really, uh, I think, puzzling uh, why the Russians have not achieved air supremacy at this point. They still haven't got air supremacy. And if this were a campaign that the United States were waging or a NATO force were waging, um, now, granted, the Russians wanted to dash down the road and take Kiev without, uh, without much resistance, so they didn't have a big prep stage of prep fires. <clears throat> but we would have started several days of, of round-the-clock air operations to take out their integrated air defenses and all anything I could get off the ground. So that by the time our uh, forces began to move on the ground, they would have had uh, combat air patrol over top, cap over top, and there would have been nothing in the air from the enemy to oppose us. Russians still haven't done that. They have still not got air supremacy and only local air superiority. And they don't, they don't have it throughout the entire country. So their incapacity to dominate the airspace has made it much more difficult for their maneuver forces to be effective. Well, we, we and the Allies are pouring lots of firepower to the uh, – giving lots of firepower to the Ukrainians. But I guess the question is how can we get more and uh, quicker? For example, they told Ann Applebaum that the, the Ukrainians, they wanted 500 more Javelin missiles. But the Wall Street Journal said, geez, that only covers three to five days uh, of, of combat. And I guess the, the question is what more can we do and how fast? And, and the one thing we haven't been giving them is airplanes because it hasn't been feasible. Can that change? Yeah, I think several things. Um, we're not the only people giving them equipment. Right. Uh, and much of that equipment that is arriving, so anti-tank missile systems in some form or another, we could talk about the Javelin if you want. It is a revolutionary piece of equipment. It is really killing a lot of tanks. Uh, so we're giving them Javelins. The, the Brits, the French, uh, the Germans uh, are also giving them anti-tank weapon systems as well. So uh, lots, of, lots of gear is still flowing in. Plus, we're going to probably up the, the velocity and the volume uh, of the Javelins that we're sending. Um, so I think that the, the, what we need to give them now to the list that Anne was, uh, was given, and everybody that goes to uh, Ukraine now gets a list, um, is precision fires. This is really what they need now. And so when we give them artillery, um, and we've given them some artillery pieces, uh, other countries have given them some artillery pieces, when you, when you see the numbers of rounds, and I... I'm not going to be able to comment with authority on this, but my, I hope I'm right. When you, when you see the numbers of rounds going in, in with the 18 uh, systems that we're giving them, the 777, the 777, which is a very good artillery piece with long range, if we're giving them rocket-assisted projectiles, the wrap round, and if we're giving them copperhead, which is a laser-guided round where one round will kill one tank, that m massively expands the capacity of those weapon systems to inflict damage on the Russians. Now, remember, we're not the only ones giving them artillery. And we're not the only mm -hmm. ones giving them uh, ammunition. Uh, we're also planes? not the only ones training them. Now, air. Uh, I wanted air to go in, and who am I? But just an observer here, I wanted air to go in really early. And it appears that air is going to go in now. Uh, and I, I don't have the depth of knowledge on the decision-making on that. 
But we should have had air in early. We are going to give them helicopters. The U.S. is going to give them MI-17s, which is a, a helicopter that they are familiar with, and it is it has capacity to both move troops, and uh, you can configure it as a gunship as well. So uh, they'll get helicopters from us. They're getting uh, other systems from other countries. So the, the flow is, is going, Al. The question is, how quickly can we get it into the, the uh, crossing points, into the, the four front-line uh, NATO countries, uh, Poland, uh, Hungary, uh, Slovakia, and Romania, how quickly can we get to those crossing points? We're actually moving stuff pretty quickly. Uh, and we, it comes in by air to the crossing points. It comes in by air, rail, and road, where we break it down, pass it to the Ukrainians. They put it on rail and road, and off it goes. And it goes very quickly because we realize there's a vulnerability there. As long as it's stuck in warehouses or, or massed on the Ukrainian side of the border, it is what just happened the other day. It is vulnerable to strikes, and the Russians know that. Uh, James. So, General, are, are tanks in 2022 become the battleships of 1942? Was a much feared thing, and it, you know, found out that it, it, it really wasn't that important that aircraft carriers had kind of taken over. And it looks like a lot of these Russian tanks are being taken out by these missiles that, as my understanding, they attack from the top, that a tank is like built strongest from the front, less on the sides, and then even less on the top. But, are, are tanks declining in importance uh, uh, well, in, in Europe for right commanders who employ tanks, uh, and I'll just use myself as an example, uh, I would always have worked very hard to, com to employ tanks in a combined environment, combined arms environment. So I would have had infantry to the flanks and to the front. I would probably have used artillery to uh, fire on what I would have thought uh, as tanks were moving, to fire on those potential firing positions where those missiles might be launched. Um, but I would not have, as the Russians did, employ tanks alone. And I think you saw uh, some of the videos of large numbers of tanks in bunched up in formations on roads with, with no apparent flank security, no real infantry. And tanks should always, in built-up areas, tanks should always be uh, employed with infantry. Now, tanks do have vulnerabilities. Uh, but you reduce those vulnerabilities by employing them in a combined arms environment where aviation, rotary wing helicopter aviation, fixed wing aviation, artillery and infantry are all working as a combined arms team. The tank vulnerabilities, and you've absolutely correctly identified a top-down attack weapon system is the weapon system to go after those tanks. It reduces those vulnerabilities. So they're not obsolete, but if they're employed alone, they're quite vulnerable. And the Russians have been paying a price for the, the fact that they have not employed combined arms teams uh, for the employment of their tanks. So, so General, you've alluded to this, but shared with, with our, our listeners that, you know, wars, in, in my view and a lot of people's view, are, are really won by E5 to O3s. That these are the people that maintain, that do the logistics, that do the actual leadership, that repair tanks or aircraft or on ships on weapon systems and things like that. In everything that I have read is they have a hollowed out NCO Corps or junior officer corps. And just because you know, our, our audience may not be as sophisticated in military strategy, talk about the importance of senior NCO and junior officers when, when you're in a, in a situation like this. Sure. Uh uh, you put your finger on, I think, one of the profound differences between these two armies that are colliding. Uh, one army is an army that uh, desires desperately to be part of the West, uh, that stands for values, 
uh, and values human life and human rights, etc. The other, the other army is an army from an autocracy, where you can't afford to have an army full of uh, independent decision makers, and that's a problem. Uh, now, to your point about NCOs and junior officers, uh, there's a term in the military called the last tactical mile, and generals and colonels make decisions and uh, embrace strategies that deliver forces across the battlefield to a point where they are then going to be moving across the last tactical mile. And nobody's there but the young NCOs and the young officers. And when the fire is the hottest, when it's coming in at you and you're maneuvering and you got to get the kids up off the ground, those troops got to get off the ground and move forward, it's the non-commissioned officer that gets them up off the ground and moves them forward. It's the young officer, the young second lieutenant up to captain who gets them up off the ground and moves them forward. So it is the captain and the lieutenants. It's the first sergeants and the platoon sergeants. They are the ones who, who ultimately uh, win the victory in the last tactical mile. And, you know, I'm an infantryman, so I spent a lot of time in that environment. And we used to say, no matter how brilliant the general and how big the big blue arrow is that's sweeping across the map for the grunts, our war is always a frontal assault. And in, in many respects, that frontal assault is only going to be effective because the human factor de developed in your NCOs and officers will carry that frontal assault through. Now, you also mentioned maintenance, etc. It's the same thing for maintenance. The last tactical mile of maintenance is making sure that the supplies get forward. That's another problem that the, the Russians had in the main effort towards Kyiv. Their supply system broke down, and it broke down because the trucks hadn't been maintained, because there weren't NCOs to supervise the maintenance of those trucks where they were stored. Tires were literally popping on the road because they had not been rotated. So NCOs who should have been maintaining those uh, vehicles, ensuring they were, and officers who would have been overseeing that, <clears throat> they were absent. And that's the, that's the profound difference. It's the non-commissioned officer who ultimately gets the, the troops up off the ground and moves them forward under fire to achieve the last, the victory in the last tactical mile. And that's a hard world to live in. And the countries that have uh, developed NCO corps, uh, you can be outnumbered and the enemy can have uh, superior equipment. But if you've got a really strong NCO corps and a well-developed uh, junior officer corps, uh, that's a big force multiplier in a fight. Well, just one more. I, I, I heard this. I'll just say it because I thought it was kind of good. A, a comedian, a soldier, and a statesman walk into a bar. What does the bartender say? It's on the house, Mr. Zelensky. <laughs> that's <laughs> would, true. It ought to be, that's for sure. Boy, he, he, has been, he has been a fabulous leader. He has been. Um, General Allen, let me ask you this. Let's talk about a possible endgame. Uh, you know, as, as elusive as it seems right now, what just spell out what can Zelensky accept? He can't give away all the Donbass region. That's their industrial center. And, and, and what might Putin be willing to accept and falsely claim a victory? Well, the odds are pretty big here, Al. Um, let's let's start at the highest grand strategic level, <clears throat> because this is not just the Russians fight now. This is the Russians and the Chinese fight. Uh, if, if your listeners, and I hope they would uh, take the time, although you'll never get the time back in your life, if they take the time to read the 4 February joint statement by the Russians and the Chinese when Vladimir Putin uh, helped Xi Jinping initiate, uh, open the uh, Olympics, 
that statement basically redefines the world order uh, per, if you will, a manifesto that creates an axis between Moscow and Beijing. So at the very highest level, they redefine democracy. They redefine human rights. They redefine territorial integrity and that the concept of sovereignty. And they go on to do a lot of other things. For example, the Chinese sign on to the Russians in this statement, criticizing NATO for never taking Russia's legitimate security concerns into, into effect. So at the very highest level, we have, I think, we're on the very verge of an outcome of this war being a new Cold War. There's no question in my mind. Because they went to the trouble to define it, and the Russians turned right around and attempted to obliterate, remove it from its existence, uh, a peaceful democratic country. And I say it in those terms because Vladimir Putin has made the case publicly that Ukraine has no basis for legitimacy, <clears throat> that the Ukrainians and the Russian people are basically one DNA, and therefore there's no necessary unique uh, uh, Ukrainian nationality that should be recognized. And so with, with the weight of this war now burdening that worldview between the axis of Moscow and China, we've got a major outcome we have to deal with in the aftermath of this campaign. Then as you shrink this down a little bit more geographically to the campaign itself, uh, remember the, whether it was the Rus or it was the Tsars or it was the uh, communists, the Soviet leadership in, in uh, uh, Moscow or whether it's Vladimir Putin, this thing called the near abroad has been an obsession with whether they were ruling out of St. Petersburg or Moscow, the controlling the buffer around Russia has always been a central objective uh, of whoever was leading in, in whatever form that took uh, in what we call Russia today. And so uh, controlling Ukraine as a distinct potential Western democratic NATO outpost was anathema to Vladimir Putin. And so his intent was to very quickly rush down the road to Kiev, brush aside what he thought would be an ineffective, ineffectual military, uh, not be opposed by the population, which would welcome the Russian occupation, and the government would collapse. And we, he'd do it so quickly that he would present the West and NATO a fait accompli, and it was over. And he had now locked in Ukraine for the foreseeable future as a buffer between Russia and NATO. And that, that failed, and it failed, it failed badly. Then but, but that, that I'm sorry. Go ahead. Well, you know, Clausewitz taught us that war is a continuation of politics by other means, and it was Vladimir Putin's intent that the politics of this war would be, in essence, the incorporation of Ukraine into the modern Russian Empire. We'll just use those terms because they actually work. But the reality is that he his military did so badly that war is now an extension. Uh, the, the politics are an extension of war by other means. And so where initially he wanted to incorporate Ukraine, now it appears that he's had to very substantially limit his objectives to the Donbass region, Luhansk in the north, Donetsk to the south, potentially an arc of control to, uh, this is why Mariupol is so important, because Mariupol gives him a connection between Donbass and the uh, Isthmus and uh, the Crimean Peninsula. And if, his, if he'd done it correctly, uh, he would also be controlling Odessa. So he's had to limit his long-term objectives. And, and I think Al and James, uh, his hope is, and nobody knows for sure, but you know, 9 May is a big day for Russia, the annual victory day of the great patriotic war over the Nazis. 
He's hoping to perhaps be able to point to objectives that he has achieved in the recovery of Donbass, what he would say are the Russian speaking, Russian, Russian ethnic people, delivering them from the genocide of the Ukrainians, his misinformation, disinformation, <clears throat> be able to declare victory and then dig in along some line of control. Now, I think there was a time when uh, Zelensky was willing to accept some form of, of, uh, of an agreement where some dimension of Ukrainian territory uh, would remain under Russian control. But the realities of, of Bucha and the realities of, uh, of what's happening in Mariupol, where they're liable to kill every single one of the Mar Ukrainian Marines in that steel plant, iron and steel plant, uh, they're going to fight to the finish. Reminds me a lot of Stalingrad. You raised the Nazi, uh, the Soviet Nazi war. The Stalingrad, you'll recall, the Germans were surrounded in a in a major factory, and that was the end for them. So I think where Zelensky might have been willing to entertain some kind of a ceasefire and long term arrangement <clears throat> based on some additional Russian control, the realities of what the Russians did to the Ukrainian people makes it almost impossible for him to do that. So we got to be careful as allies. And we can be allies with a little a. He's not a NATO member yet. Um, we got to be careful about attempting to create pressure on Zelensky prematurely uh, to accept some form of a Russian uh, a formulation for a Russian ceasefire and a peace agreement. Because, again, the history is Georgia in 08, uh, Crimea in 14, Ukraine in 22. And it's one more piece after another. And it's, it's worth remembering, this near abroad concept. Remember the, the people of Belarus, just to the north of Ukraine, were about to overthrow Lukashenko last year. And it took a Russian intervention to keep uh, Lukashenko in power. And to the east in January of this year, it appeared that the uh, president of uh, Kazakhstan was going to be overthrown by popular resistance. They activated the Collective Security Organization, the CSTO, Collective Security Treaty Organization, and it went into Almaty and brutally put down the popular opposition. So uh, people aren't happy in the great Russian empire right now, and uh, Putin has got, is going to have to have more limited objectives coming out of this fight. Uh, General, I'm going to turn it over to James, but you mentioned China. The AP had a story today that um, China is very carefully watching and worrying about the Russia's military uh, misadventures. What do you think is going through Xi Jinping's mind right now? Well, several things. I, I know I, I've uh, led two delegations with the Chinese since this war has started uh, to talk with them. Um, and I, while I can't go through the details of the conversation, what I can say is that they're, they're, they're moving with some excruciating pain to try to figure, figure out a way to disavow the invasion uh, and now the, the brutality of the Russians. That's the first thing. How, do, how does China retain its capacity for a relationship with Russia but maintain its distance from the brutal reality of the campaign? Uh, if, if we do believe that this manifesto that they issued on the 4th of February is all about uh, all about the future, their future definition of the world. Now, with regard to Taiwan, uh, where we had had some extended relationship with Ukraine over time, we've had a very deep, long-standing, you know, almost DNA-deep relationship with the Taiwans for many, many years. They're well-armed. They're well-trained. We've heard I've heard some Westerners sort of 
dismiss them as feckless. They won't fight. Well, they just don't know. I owned the Taiwan portfolio several years ago, so I know a little bit about it. And so what Xi Jinping has to consider, first, he was in a collective leadership position. And you'll recall, he shrank that, lead, that collective leadership position to a solitary leader. There's one leader now in China. That's as of the 19th Party Congress in 17. Coming up on the 20th Party Congress this year, <clears throat> Xi Jinping's done, things aren't going all that great for him in some respects. And he's also watched a modern and modernized Russian army fought to a standstill in multiple places by uh, a military that no one would have imagined uh, could have done this. And James will know this, being a Marine, there are hard kinds of military fighting in the world. There are a few harder than amphibious operations. <clears throat> and with Taiwan armed and trained and supported, with the Chinese army being basically a one-child army, think about it, almost all the troops in the Chinese PLA were born during the policy of one child. You better, you better make sure that if you're going to go across the strait and take Taiwan, it better be brilliant and it better be decisive and there better not be many casualties. Neither of those things I think we could expect out of the Chinese right now. So Xi Jinping's trying to figure out how he positions himself vis-a-vis -vis the Russians and this catastrophe that's befalling the Russians. And now what does it really mean to have a modernized, modern military when he's seeing what the Ukrainians are doing to the Russians and how what Taiwan might do to the Chinese as they try to come across the strait? James. So, General, I want to ask you a question about this and a question about the Marine Corps. First is, I'm pretty sure that the fog of war is real, that it's very difficult to get real-time information. And I'm pretty sure that every person that listens to this is intensely interested in this. What does General Allen, what does General Allen read that you can share with us that we have access to that you think are particularly reliable as to what's going on in the battlefield and what's going on in Ukraine? Because we can't call our friends that are, you know, four-star generals or, you know, higher people. We're, we're sort of dependent on the kindness of strangers here. What strangers would you recommend that we pay particular attention to as this goes forward? Well, I've been, uh, and I'm very careful not to endorse a particular uh, Right, media. I understand. But I, I have found that the reporting by uh, the Times, New York Times, has been very good. Uh, plus uh, uh, the, the major networks, CBS, ABC, NBC, they've done very good work. So basically, you, you think your view is we're getting pretty reliable information from the places that we've come to we, traditionally trust. We are. Uh, and this is one of the reasons is because it's in the Ukrainians' interest uh, to give Western media as much access as possible to the realities of this war. Now, the one thing you're not hearing, James, <clears throat> is uh, what the casualties are that the Ukrainians are suffering. Uh, right. Because I hope they're lying to us. <laughs> you know, Churchill said the truth is so precious, it has to be protected by a bodyguard of lies. Right. And when people say, you think the government's lying to you, you know, my answer is, I hope they are. <laughs> Shit, they should not be telling me the yeah, truth no, because right. everybody else will know the truth. <laughs> so I want to ask you a question about the Marine Corps. General Barger, who's a two-lane guy, is a commandant, and he's like reoriented the mission of the Marine Corps. And I go to these boards at these sites, and there's a lot of, you know, ah, oh, you didn't have it, you didn't know what it was like when we were in there. And the Marine Corps has this kind of like almost obsessive thing about it was better 
you know, when I was in there, and it is now. But if you could explain what General Varga is up to, what he's trying to do, how he's trying to reorient the mission of, of, of the Marine Corps, I think it'd be helpful to our listeners. Well, I think his intent is to try to reorient the Corps uh, to what he imagines to be uh, the principal adversary that the United States uh, has the greatest likelihood to fight in the 21st century. That's the Chinese. Uh, now, um, and he's done that by giving up a lot of what would be considered traditional combat power. Uh, so all of our tanks are gone, for example. Much of our tube artillery is gone. We're going to get some more rocket artillery. Uh, we've given up several battalions of infantry. We've given up a lot. I'll just say we've given up a lot. Um, and there are uh, not, as you might imagine, uh, not an insignificant number of folks who grew up in the Corps over the, over the Cold War era. Uh, fought with the Corps in Vietnam, and then beyond that in uh, many different other places. Uh, and I think the thing to remember, uh, which is sort of at the heart of the, of the, if it's controversy, I want to be careful about this, because the retired general officer right. community is trying to be very deferential to the commandant. <clears throat> and it, it is leaking out into the public now, this, this uh, difference of opinion. Um, but I think that one of the, the critical key points, and you'll understand this as a Marine, uh, we, during the height of the Cold War, the Marine Corps never reorganized itself to fight the Soviets on the central front of Europe. That was always going to be the job of the chain-mailed chain fist of the United States, the United States Army. Meanwhile, the naval service, of which the Marine Corps was the landing force in many respects, could have been and would have been and was employed in key areas on the flank of the NATO campaign against the Soviets. But here's the point. Uh, with other combatant commanders in South America or in Africa or in Southeast Asia, uh, what the Marine Corps brings that the Army can't bring very quickly but could bring eventually, what the Marine Corps brings is an amphibious combined arms team, a Marine Air Ground Task Force that can be deployed very quickly uh, to the needs of these uh, combatant commanders to put out a fire while it's still small before it breaks into something bigger that requires a much larger American commitment. So there's the old saying, James, you'll remember this, uh, when a crisis breaks out, the President of the United States in the Oval Office will say, where are my car aircraft carriers and where are my Marines? Meaning, <clears throat> I've got a real crisis, I've got to respond with what I've got as quickly as possible. When you give up a lot of armor-protected mobility, when you give up a lot of firepower, uh, and you give up the capacity to support uh, the uh, combatant commanders who might need that kind of amphibious or expeditionary Marine Air Ground Task Force, uh, then we have less capacity uh, in those moments of crisis. So it's, it is right now a balance between the commandant who sees uh, that the Chinese are the principal potential adversary in the world and is scaling and shaping the Marine Corps to be optimized uh, against that particular threat. And then others who recognize that the Chinese are, in fact, likely to be uh, the, the principal uh, adversary in the future, but also recognizing that what we, we Marine Corps never fought on the, on the central front of Europe, but we were engaged constantly in non-combatant evacuation operations or small-scale operations all around the periphery and in many other theaters <clears throat> during the entire period of the Cold War. And so that's really the trade-off between those who are observing the changes and those who are making the changes in the Marine Corps.
Thank you, sir. That was very illuminating. I've learned a lot. I guess you just, but the one thing about the Marine Corps, it's always, it's, it's always saying, why do we have to have right. a Marine Corps? Right. All right, you, you get that a lot. Only if you give you that a lot. Now, and, and the truth of the matter is, is I, I just think the Marine Corps adapts as it, you know, in its entire since Tun Tavern in about 1776, or you know, at a remembering boot camp. But it, it, it's, it's had to adapt as it, as it went forward because it, it, it is a branch of the military that's whose mission or, or actual existence. No one questions the existence of the army. Right. All right. No one says, do we really need an army? All right. And no one says, do we really need a Navy? All right. But, but the Marine Corps have to answer that, that question. And I think they've been very effective in the PR has been, and I'm glad to, you know, wear my Marine Corps hat on television and do what I can to give, to give the Marine Corps a boost because I think it's an outstanding group, but it, it, it it can't sit still. It has to, it, it, the nature of the Marine Corps is you have to maneuver, it, not just on the battlefield, but also in the minds of Congress and the public also. Well, you, you know, your point, just to take a, a, a moment on that, you know, the, the first time the Marine Corps really came ashore and fought as a major organization was in World War One. You know, up to that point, we'd been oh. landing forces, landing brigades uh, with uh. our naval fleets, uh, naval forces. But we came ashore and fought like the Army. Uh, in Did World we? War One, and at the end of World War One, there was a moment when there was no certainty that if we were just a, an army unit with a different kind of uniform, why would we need to be an independent force? And really brilliant Marines saw that this thing in the Pacific was starting to turn south on us. The the Chinese, uh, sorry, the Japanese presence at that particular time was becoming both bellicose and more pervasive. And we better as a naval force and a maritime nation and a Pacific nation, we better have the capacity uh, to deal with uh, forward operating bases and to, uh, and to conduct so, amphibious operations. And so the, the Corps really pivoted from being a, a land force that was an adjunct to the Army in World War I to being the amphibious force that set both the amphibious doctrine of World War II that you saw applied by uh, MacArthur in the South in the Pacific, you saw the Army applied coming ashore at uh, Normandy, but that the Marine Corps applied throughout the entire Pacific. Now, you, you, to your argument, now we're thinking again about what the realities are of the 21st century and this really uh, preeminent threat that we have uh, that potentially could emerge from the Chinese. So, so when Trump was in France, Bella Wood, as, my, as I recall, there's as many Bella Wood boulevards on Marine Corps bases as there are Iwo Jima boulevards. Bella, Bella Wood is a, is a pretty big moment in the history yeah. of the Marine Corps. Yeah. And, and that was just classic continental, you know, land-based land -based fighting. And when the president didn't go there, I'm like, man, you don't realize what a big freaking deal this is in, in the whole culture? Yeah. And, I, I mean, of course— James, he didn't realize a lot. Uh, I mean, so the fact that he didn't realize yeah. that Bella Wood was really at the very soul of what it is to be a Marine. Yeah, right. My, yes, it's, it's, it's like it, it is as big, you know, when they're training you. and Of course, they indoctrinate you. That's what they're supposed yeah. to do. Yeah. Right? You're indoctrinated as much in the color of Bella, you know, if Bella Wood as you are anything else. And I, I think that General Kelly probably disagreed with him a lot. I, I think he was like really personally like, took this very personally and very to heart. A lot of Marines he noticed didn't it. Really see a lot of Marines noticed at. it, frankly. 
Yes, they do. Well, well my man, I thank you so much, Albert. Uh, John Allen, you have been you. you have been, as we said to start with, you always educate us, uh, and you and you you more than rose to that uh, today. We can't thank you enough for generosity of your time and your knowledge, and um, uh, we will be back. And I hope you'll come back and uh, do another show sometime. But thank you, thank you, sir. It's a pleasure to be with both of you. Thank you. Please be well. Thank you. What what a great day. Thank you, sir. Take care. Good day. Thank you very much. Selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to do we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify's there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify's the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash audioboom, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash audioboom now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash audioboom. James, um, you believe that as President Biden's poll numbers continue to tank, that one of the reasons are Democrats. Explain. Okay, so... If you look at uh, Biden's average is 42 and a half, and let's just assume at a comparable time that Trump's polling average was 42 and a half. When Trump was at 42 and a half, he was getting 90 to 95 percent of Republicans. Biden is clocked in around 75 percent approval of Democrats. And my, my theory is the reason for that is you have Democrats telling other Democrats and independents that Biden hadn't done anything. Well, there's a lot that people will believe that. They will believe that. So if 40% of the country identifies as Democratic, which is a, probably a low number, but let's just give it, and you moved your number from 75 to 90, that's six points on your approval. So instead of you have 42 and a half, you had 48 and a half. You know how much more comfortable you are in a midterm election between 42 and a half and 48 and a half? It's the difference if, if between Democrats winning and losing. Stop of course. And if they stop criticizing other Democrats, your independent number is going to go up. Because if I'm an independent and, and I hear it and I'm told by Democrats that a Democrat is doing a poor job, then I'm going to believe that. That, that, that has credibility to me. And I, I understand what Senator Warren was trying to do in The New York Times, but it's saying we hadn't done much. If we do more, we can we can win the election as opposed to we've we've done a hell of a lot 
And if we do a little bit more, we can get the ball across the finish line. It's just attitude among Democrats that you cannot ever say that anything is going well. As long as there is injustice in the world, as long as there's racism in the world, as long as there's misogynistic people out there, you can't say it's going well no matter what. Well, the contrast, as you point out, the contrast to the Trump years is really striking. You, you know, you heard a lot of Republicans privately grumbling about Trump. You didn't hear much public criticism. You really didn't. And they uh, had. Go ahead. Because they had enforcement. They'd call you. They'd primary you. All right. They would send people in. No one fears us, Albert, and you cannot govern without fear. I'm sorry. It sounds like something cynical, you know, coming from something, but it's true. If they don't fear what you can do, if other Democrats know they can speak out and yap and say whatever they want and nothing is going to happen to them, they'll continue to do that. If people, if Republicans just do anything they want, Supreme Court does whatever they want, they pass whatever gerrymandering shit they want, and a Democratic response is non-existent or feeble, they're going to continue to do it. And no one fears anybody. We don't, the Democrats don't fear other Democrats. Republicans don't fear Democrats. And you have to have an element of fear. I'm sorry. That's just the politics. James, what, you know, that, that is an important point, but what else do you have to do to motivate these Democratic voters? Mostly it's disproportionately young voters and voters of color. They both have a lot to lose. They sure do. I was in Georgia and I campaigning, and uh, Mayor Shirley Franklin was there, former Governor Roy Barnes, just, it was a whole bunch of people, and Charlie Bailey, who's our lieutenant governor's candidate. And, you know, I said, I'm, I'm vexed because if you are a young, you know, voter of color in Georgia, and you didn't, you're not outraged by the way that that elegant Justice Jackson, and, and that really brilliant person was treated with the contempt that these people did. If that doesn't motivate you to vote, I don't know what to tell you. If it doesn't motivate you to vote, that hourly workers have more leverage and more power they've had any time since anybody can remember, I don't know what to tell you. If it doesn't motivate the fact that after Biden's first year, child poverty dropped by something like 25%. I mean, some of this, and where are we going to, if, if we stave off uh, you know, humiliation, it's going to be in a young vote. And we're just, they're just not motivated. And I, you know, you, people would say, well, you should motivate them with, with kind of optimism. And of course, everybody thinks that student loan debt is the big issue. It's most, a, most young people don't have student loan debt. And most people go to, you got uh, you to go to college. Yeah. College. Yeah. You, you, there's no one that goes to, to LSU that's racked in student debt. I mean, you got some, but not very much. I mean, there are alternatives to you, but I, I understand it's a problem, but that's not what's going to motivate, what motivates, you, you know, elite school graduates in, in debt is something entirely different than motivates most young people. But they have to be, they have to understand that there's something at risk here and something at risk that they believe in and something at risk of life. You can't be motivated by climate. I don't know what to tell you. I mean, wow. at, at some point, the public has got to see, you know, they, we have to give them cues and we have to talk about what's going on. But at some point, they're going to have to take their life in their own hands. And it, it's not too much to say that young people in the civil rights movement, 
were activated, were motivated. It's not too much to say that young people obviously, you know, fought like hell in World War II when the country was in trouble, or young people fought in the Civil War when the country was in trouble. And if we continue having this youth apathy that we have now, the country, not just the Democratic Party, but the country, the country that they're going to live in is going to suffer. Yeah. Might it is. Um, let's, not, <clears throat> let's not let Republicans off the hook in this discussion, James. A 30-something old Trump appointee who the uh, Bar Association rated unqualified uh, for a district court judge threw out the mass requirements for airlines and other travel. Uh, you know, medical experts say that decision was not based on, on, on any data. It was based on ideology, I think. And, um, uh, you know, all of us want to get away from some of these restrictions that we've gone through for the last two years. But I think this was just a right-wing judge who made a capricious decision uh, to appeal to, you know, that that right-wing base. Uh, Well, there's there's no doubt about it. And she was judged as unqualified. She's 33 years old. She has no business on a federal bench. And put this out. And, and you think of the jeopardy that they put flight attendants in. All right, so a flight attendant, you go on a plane, you're going to come say there's, I don't know, 120 seats. You're working four legs a day. So by my math, you're exposed to 480 passengers every day. Well, it, 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 those kind of anything you can do to reduce odds at that point makes a lot of sense. You know, now look, I, I flew and I double mask, but I flew from Atlanta to Gulfport, there's three people on a plane that had a mask. But that flight attendant is, they're all breathing on, on, on him or her. And it, 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 of course, the government has always had power to enforce public, you know, health requirements. And, and this, this judge is just what we're going to get. And it's not just her. You're going to have people, in, you know, people on the Supreme Court that agree with her. It, it, it's, it's really, it's very troubling. Well, thank goodness she wasn't around in, um, in uh, 1777 because she would have thrown out George Washington's uh, vaccine Absolutely. mandate for his troops. And we might be uh, still worshiping the crown today uh, if yes. that were the case. Another right-wing uh, moment, James, uh, uh, some, some cons- so-called economists, Stephen Moore and colleagues, they concocted a study on the effects <laughs> of COVID. And guess what it concluded? This may come as a surprise to you, James. It concluded that the red states did well and the blue states failed. Now, yes. d- d- does that shock you, James? No, because <laughs> this was done by <laughs> Stephen Moore, who I've never seen a guy, you know, a blind squirrel finds an acorn. This guy hadn't found an acorn in his life. And so, of course, the death rate in California, I think like 58 per 100,000, the death rate in Florida is 153 per 100,000. Yeah, it's, yeah. And they, and they weighted it. So I yeah. can weight anything. And, and, and the, the research was just, it, it, it wasn't just debunked, it was laughable. It was totally laughable. He did some something in Canada, I mean, not Canada, Kansas, and the newspaper published op-eds. It will never publish anything that this guy writes ever again. It was so factually erroneous and made up. He's well, been I, writing children's fiction for a long time. Yeah, I, I agree with you. Um, but I'll tell you this. I think this will become an article of faith 
uh, among the right. They will peddle it. Uh, they will misrepresent it. I can hear Ron DeSantis bragging about it right now with his dreadful record down there. But that's the way the world works these days. Well, you know, I, sometimes you just have to, you know, with the better to light a candle and curse the darkness, but there's a lot of darkness. There is. And I, I, I do think that, you know, it all has to put in context. The United States has the highest death rate per 100,000 of any of the other, I think it's 15 or 14 other industrialized countries in the world. Yet, you, you want to say that, you know, we, we did everything fine, nothing happens. Well, why, why do so many people die in here than die in, in, in a lot of less prosperous countries with a lot less robust health system than we do? It's been a, a really bad pandemic, and it's had some really crappy responses. Let's, let's get Stephen Moore working. No, no, we don't want to get Stephen Moore working on that. No. Uh, maybe, maybe we'll look at Johns Hopkins uh, data instead of Stephen Moore data. I, I somehow well, yeah. think that may be a little bit more well, reliable. If, if I can wait anything, I can give anything you want. If I, if I do a, a poll yep. and, you know, and I wait such and such, if I wait young people as 50% of the electorate, but I can show a good result. Yeah, yeah. No, no doubt. Selling a little or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to do we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify's there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify's the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash audioboom, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash audioboom now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash audioboom. All right, for now, for one of our favorite segments, the viewer questions and hopefully our good answers. The questions are always good. James, first two, I'm going to combine them. Kathy in Highland, California says, when I send my donation via the internet to a Democratic candidate, does all my donation go directly to that candidate? And also is my name sold to other candidates on fundraisers? And I think and a first cousin, Carrie in Maplewood, New Jersey says, in 20, he spent for what was him a lot of money on various campaigns, most of whom got their clocks clean. So what the heck should I be doing? I can't run for office. I don't feel I have any applicable skills to help anyone. I need to do something. If not money, then what? <laughs> That's a, a great question. I get that a lot. 
And, you know, money can be very effective if it's targeted and sought out. And uh, Al and I have been very big on – we. The Democrats tend to give a lot of money to glamour frontline races where we really don't have a chance and we forget about how important some of these less than headline senator governor's races uh, are. And I would urge you to make a look at where you have the contested secretary of state races or there's actually a Democratic, I sent out an email from the Democratic Secretaries of State Association which raises money and, and sends it out uh, the way it's needed in these really important elections. So uh, as, a, as a donor and as a person committed to American values and particularly the values of pluralism and, and, and tolerance and, and, and education and things that we all care about, you know, you, you, have, you have to spend a little time, you have to be strategic, you have to pick out trusted sources, and you have to follow them. But your question is, is, is very good, it's very thoughtful, it's very on point. And I've tried to, and as you have, we both have been that, that we have to be more strategic in our giving. And sometimes parties change as the election goes on. You seem like a person that's, that's very informed, that's very patriotic. And I, I really love your question and just keep getting self-educated and where to the extent you can send money. Now, a lot of people are writing postcards or calling someone and say, give me a list of 100 names of people in your state Senate district. By the way, they're very important, very, very important. And I'll write postcards to them. Uh, the Internet gives you a, a chance to, to, to be more involved or you do your own research. But, but it, it, our democracy and our country is, is really in trouble. And, you know, it, it, it really commands all of us and, and every citizen that cares about the United States and the values that we hold dear has to be like you and really engaged. Thank you for and, your question. And, and James, to go to Kathy's question, does her donation go directly to a candidate and also is her name then sold to other candidates for fundraisers? Well, you want it to be so. So I raised money for American Bridge and they said, how did you get my name? I said, well, we go and we look at who's, you know, we'll, we'll put a high, rate, high, high dollar fundraiser. But wouldn't you want us, you know, to do that? And, of course, if, you know, no, no good deed goes unpunished, but if, if you send a $100 check to, to Beasley in North Carolina, then the Val Demings people are going to pick your name up and they're going to send you a fundraising email or whatever. You should, like, give them – you don't have to send them money, but at least give them credit for mining, having a good thing where they're mining donors. You, you, you want that. And you want to be proud of your contribution, you have to, you know, depending on what your own financial circumstances are. But but we got to be very good at getting people, you know, on board who are already on board. Because we know for a fact that if someone is given money to a political campaign, they're infinitely more likely to give it to another one than somebody's never given. Yep. So it's, it's, it's actually a sign of competence that when you give, they get your name and somebody else asks for it. <laughs> Elizabeth in Unionville, Pennsylvania says, what are your thoughts on the Connor Lamb versus John Fetterman Senate primary race in Pennsylvania? Elizabeth, uh, I grew up uh, in Pennsylvania. I follow the state fairly uh, carefully, really carefully, as James does too. I think Connor Lamb, the congressman from outside Pittsburgh, would have been a formidable 
general election candidate. I think he was, he's just perfect for Pennsylvania. I think that bus has really uh, uh, left the station or leaving the station. I think John Fetterman, uh, the lieutenant governor, uh, was a Bernie bro at one point. He's a colorful guy, big guy, campaigns in shorts. And his premise is he can really cut into the Republican margins in red areas. Um, mark me down as skeptical. Well, I, I, I am publicly and am very publicly committed to Connor because I know if he wins, uh, we'll win that Senate seat. Uh, Fetterman is ahead. There's no doubt about that. The thing about it is, is that primaries are very fluid and they can close very quickly. And remember, Fetterman is like in a prevent defense. And he's not showing up at events. He's saying, I got a big lead. And I've been around long enough to see that these things work sometimes, maybe most of the times, but I've seen them where they don't work, where somebody in Connors being very aggressive. And I think what we need in the fall is aggression in a lot of it. But, uh, I mean, Fetterman, if he's the nominee, obviously I would be for him 10,000%, as I'm sure Connor would too. But I, I think we have a chance to tie down a Senate seat here in May, and let, let's wait and see. Things happen. Carol in Cincinnati, Ohio, says, James, would you and other longtime political consultants like Paul Begala consider pulling together a peace or unity summit with progressive leaders to agree on some common ground messaging? I, thank you for thank you for the suggestion. I, hey, you, you, I, I don't know if you need a, a, a consultant conference and, and there are a lot of but, but that I've spoken on any number of issues and there's some people in the quote progressive unquote community that think less favorable to me than other people. I'm not sure that 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 would be something that would be very smart to engage in, but it, it's an idea and what we have to do in my I'm, thing is we have got to stop, Democrats have got to stop criticizing other Democrats because it's really hurting us and our Democratic number is nowhere close to what it used to be. And we also have to brand the Republicans. And the branding campaign that I'd like for us to do is they're weird people. They're just, they're not, they're not like normal people. I mean, the stuff that, that, that you know, testicle tanning, I, I never heard of that. I'm 77 years old. That's a weird thing. I'm sorry. Matt Gates, Jim Jordan, Lauren Boebert, Marjorie Taylor Greene, they're weird people. They're just very, very, very different. Don't forget the whole Paul Gozar. It's weird. Paul Gozar. Rick Scott. I mean, the idea that they're going to raise taxes on 75 million people is like insane. And they're so weird. What they, what they are is. You'd think, well, no one could be that goofy. Yes, they are that goofy. And, you know, my new heroine, I just got it, this Senator Mallory uh, McMorrow, Mac, she, is, she is the star of the Democratic Party. Everybody look at that clip. It really is something. We, I have, I'm going to combine, again, two questions because uh, they're, they're at least similar. Uh, Gary and Placerville, Placerville, California, says he wants to know why the hell a bonfire isn't being lit under Merrick Garland's ass. Trump is a crook and he can't be allowed to get away with his endless crockery. If Trump doesn't fry, there's no justice. And, uh, and Andre in um, Menominee, 
Upper Peninsula of Michigan says, you think DOG is waiting to act until closer to the midterm elections in order not to get put in a memory hole? First of all, uh, Andre, um, no. I think if you get closer to the election, then any kind of action is much less likely. Uh, that's traditionally been uh, been the case. Gary, I'm, I'm going to reluctantly, not reluctantly, but I'm going to cautiously say, give Garland more of a chance. When you bring a case against Trump, if you do, it better be almost absolutely bulletproof because the worst thing in the world would be to bring a case that has flaws in it. And I think he's a careful man, cautious man. Uh, I think if the case is there, he'll bring it. I think the real outrage, however, is that Manhattan district attorney. And there ought to be more focus on that. He just got into office. He, for a matter of weeks, he showed no interest in what two experienced prosecutors said was a very strong case to indict Donald Trump. And even though he says the investigation is still going on, he blew it out. And, uh, you know, save your, your venom uh, or direct your venom rather at that guy. And let's see what Merrick Garland does. One of the things that I hope Merrick Garland does is talk to Mark Pomerantz and Mr. Dunn, who was in there, that strongly recommended that Trump be indicted and said, and he's a very credible people, that Eric Adams had no interest in it. He didn't even read the briefing papers. He was no, Eric months, Adams is the mayor. Six weeks. Not Eric. I mean, uh, Richard Bragg, Alvin Bragg. Yeah. And Alvin yeah. Bragg showed no interest in it. Yeah. I guess something smells in Denmark here. And my own view is cash. And they ought to be looking into... Why he had no interest in this when two of the most experienced people, not in Manhattan, in the United States, said and went public saying this. The second thing, if, if Merrick Garland does not indict someone, it is an indictment of the justice system in the United States. And I'm going to tell you why I say that, and I mean that. Trump has been on a crime spree. He has been public about it. He flaunts his criminality. And when you have a, the highest profile person in the United States, and he still is, I hate to say this, but he is, publicly flaunting the law, then that tells everybody else that you can get away with it. And I understand that, that General Garland is cautious. You know, caution is like anything. It can be a virtue or it can be a vice. Right. And, you know, sometimes when people are out in, people see that, Street criminals see that, white-collar criminals see that. People say, why should I respect the law? It's not going to do anything to me. This guy just keeps breaking it left and right. And I'm sorry, he, he is presenting a, a, a crisis of confidence in our law enforcement uh, community here in the United States. And, man, I, you know, I, I'll give you time. And, you, you know, caution is a nice thing. But caution is like anything else. You can be too cautious. Be careful. We, we have one final question from Jeremy in Clarksville, Arkansas. This is a good question, James. He said, with the labor need high and workers low, does the open does, does this open the door to, to make a benign legal immigration policy uh, reform to it to, to, to get it through? It seems like we need immigrants to keep up with the labor needs. Where are the Democrats on this? Well, okay, I think what Biden did, remember our guest last week was very illuminating on this subject right. and about, you know, these asylum seekers and the change in, I think it's like Rule 42. But was, you're exactly right. The, the, and also, but we have a demographic crisis. We're not China where you have a one-child policy. But when you bring immigrants in who are proven to be more productive, 
who have proven to commit less crimes. Now, this is not, I'm not saying this, I'm saying this is something that's been studied ad nauseum, ad infinitum, ad anything. You have a labor shortage. You, you, you have inflation, all right? The, the immigration solves so many of these problems. And no one is making the case for immigration. They're just making the case against immigration. And, and as this has unfolded, and, and particularly as a result of our show last week, if you hadn't listened to that, I urge you to go back and take a listen. We should be device. actively right. actively promoting immigration. That it, it, it is a public good for the United States. Now, it's got to be orderly and it's got to have some kind of, you know, process that you do. You know, somebody, you have all the... Want, just have a big gate because we need more people in this country. We need more employers, employees in this country. We need more people paying into our retirement system. It, it, it and they're, they're the people that come here. You know, I've said this a million times before. If you're a mother in Guatemala and you take a, a six-year-old and a four-year-old and you walk them 700 miles to get to the United States, you're a motivated person. We ought to right. take you. You know, the the overwhelming, overwhelming majority of those people ain't coming in here to commit crimes. They're coming in here to work and and to to contribute. And uh, we know know uh, they commit. We we know. And and by the way, even when they give them the the, the ticket to show up in immigration court, that's like 90 something percent compliance with that. Right. They want to be here. They want to be unlike Trump. They're interested in following the laws of the United States. And that's another reason that Merrick Garland has got to, I don't say throw caution to the wind, be aware of caution, but caution can paralyze you. If, no. if I'm an immigrant and I come to this country and I see the former president sitting there fla- just flaunting the law, just breaking it right in front of you, then that, that's not, that's going to say, well, well, if he can do that, why can't I? And that's what's at stake here. That's what's no. at real stake. Garland has a, a, a really important role to play in you know, we, and I know the integrity of the Justice Department and this and that. The Justice Department exists for a reason. Actually, it started, it, it began, didn't start till President Grant did. It began as an effort to fight the Ku Klux Klan. But its, its single purpose is to enforce the laws of the United States. And it cannot have institutional integrity. It can't be respected as an institution. It can't have all this jargon shit you hear out of Washington Unless it does something about a, a career criminal who commits, continues to commit crimes right in front of us. That's Amen. the challenge. Amen. I, I couldn't agree more. Okay, keep those, keep those questions coming. We'll get to as many as we can. And if we didn't get to your question this week, send it again next week. Selling a little... Or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to do we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify's there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell 
everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify's the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash audioboom, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash audioboom now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash audioboom. Now for the outrage of the week. We have had some pretty terrific outrage segments, but this may be the best of all times, and I am going to yield to James Carville. Well, thank you, Albert. I, I was made aware of a speech that Senator Mallory McMorrow of, of the Democrat of the Michigan State Senate did. And it's very important to understand that another state senator sent out a, a fundraising email claiming that she was grooming young children. And when a, in a, a party in, in a that is striving for people that can communicate and communicate with emotion, personal experience, plain English, passion. This is one of the greatest four speeches I've ever seen in any legislative body anywhere in the world. And if you don't believe me and you don't trust me, we're going to play the entire four-minute-and-something soundbite that Senator McMurray did. And I, I think what people are looking for is like, I wish I could say what I think and how I feel about this insane attack on teachers and textbooks and, and just the, the, the most horrible things in the world. And she addresses these and she addresses them in plain English. She addresses them in cogently. She only went for like four minutes. She said what she had to say. It was brilliant. You sh- nothing that you pin class. You have to show this to students. I'm just, I'm just sick. I'm not teaching communications to college kids anymore because this this would be a whole study guide in the way to communicate. I'm, I'm, I'm so moved by this person and so moved by her language and her passion and her humanity. It's just a, a beautiful thing to see and to listen to. Let's play it now. And all you out there, when, after you listen to it, you know, uh, send it to your neighbors and particularly send it to any 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 skeptics. Uh, okay. And send a check to the Secretary of State that's running for re-election in Michigan. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Mr. President. I didn't expect to wake up yesterday to the news that the senator from the 22nd District had overnight accused me by name of grooming and sexualizing children in an email fundraising for herself. So I sat on it for a while wondering why me? And then I realized 
because I am the biggest threat to your hollow, hateful scheme. Because you can't claim that you are targeting marginalized kids in the name of, quote, parental rights if another parent is standing up to say no. So then what? Then you dehumanize and marginalize me. You say that I'm one of them. You say she's a groomer. She supports pedophilia. She wants children to believe that they were responsible for slavery and to feel bad about themselves because they're white. Well, here's a little bit of background about who I really am. Growing up, my family was very active in our church. I sang in the choir. My mom taught CCD. One day, our priest called a meeting with my mom and told her that she was not living up to the church's expectations and that she was disappointing. My mom asked why. Among other reasons, she was told it was because she was divorced and because the priest didn't see her at mass every Sunday. So where was my mom on Sundays? She was at the soup kitchen with me. My mom taught me at a very young age that Christianity and faith was about being part of a community, about recognizing our privilege and blessings and doing what we can to be of service to others, especially people who are marginalized, targeted, and who had less often unfairly. I learned that service was far more important than performative nonsense like being seen in the same pew every Sunday or writing Christian in your Twitter bio and using that as a shield to target and marginalize already marginalized people. I also stand on the shoulders of people like Father Ted Hesburgh, the longtime president of the University of Notre Dame, who was active in the civil rights movement, who recognized his power and privilege as a white man, a faith leader, and the head of an influential and well-respected institution and who saw black people in this country being targeted and discriminated against and beaten and reached out to lock arms with Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. when he was alive, when it was unpopular and risky and marching alongside them to say, we've got you to offer protection and service and allyship to try to right the wrongs and fix injustice in the world. So who am I? I am a straight, white, Christian, married, suburban mom who knows that the very notion that learning about slavery or redlining or systemic racism somehow means that children are being taught to feel bad or hate themselves because they are white is absolute nonsense. No child alive today is responsible for slavery. No one in this room is responsible for slavery. But each and every single one of us bears responsibility for writing the next chapter of history. Each and every single one of us decides what happens next and how we respond to history and the world around us. We are not responsible for the past. We also cannot change the past. We can't pretend that it didn't happen or deny people their very right to exist. I am a straight, white, Christian, married, suburban mom. I want my daughter to know that she is loved, supported, and seen for whoever she becomes. I want her to be curious, empathetic, and kind. People who are different are not the reason that our roads are in bad shape after decades of disinvestment, or the, that healthcare costs are too high, or that teachers are leaving the profession. I want every child in this state to feel seen, heard, and supported, not marginalized and targeted because they are not straight, white, and Christian. We cannot let hateful people tell you otherwise to scapegoat and deflect from the fact that they are not doing anything to fix the real issues that impact people's lives. And I know that hate will only win if people like me stand by and let it happen. 
So I want to be very clear right now. Call me whatever you want. I hope you brought in a few dollars. I hope it made you sleep good last night. I know who I am. I know what faith and service means and what it calls for in this moment. We will not let hate win. Hey, thanks for listening to Politics World Room with James Carville and I'm Al Hunt. Don't forget to send your questions for us by email to politicswarroom at gmail.com or tweet them for next week's show at Politicon. Following this episode, we'd appreciate it if you check out the links to our sponsors, the Helen Highwater Podcast, Workable, Hello Fresh, and Blinkist in the show notes. We deeply thank you for supporting them. When you do, you help make this podcast happen. So to keep up with us, subscribe to Politics War Room on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. Please rate the show with a five-star review. We'll be back next week with another show as we continue our War Room planning. Selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to do we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify's there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify's the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash audioboom, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash audioboom now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash audioboom.